We might be early. We might be late. I don't know. Dr. Nolan's going to tell us, but I'll tell you what. I'm your host, DJ. You are back with Calling All Beings, and I'm here with my co-conspirator, my co-creator, my brother from another, Money Nathan. Good evening, Money. (laughs) What's up, DJ? How's it going, man? Oh, my God. I know how excited you've been for this, and the response that we've gotten for this guest is, I don't know, I think only, yeah, I think only Lou Elizondo is the only person we've had even close to, to this. So yeah, uh, I've had people camping outside the house <laughs> uh, with like questions on poster board, you know, can you ask Dr. Nolan? Yes, uh, me too. I've, uh, I, <laughs> it's wild, man. So without further ado, this brother right here is a professor of pathology at Stanford university and a prodigious researcher of the phenomenon. He is fearless. He puts his money where his mouth is. So party people, put those hands together for Dr. Gary Nolan. Yeah, baby. We're not playing around tonight. No. No. Not at all. We're not playing. Yeah, see that? We got all three of us. The men in black. You people have been wondering who it is. It's that mysterious squadron that Rick Doty talks about. Mm -hmm. Uh Okay, so Nathan, uh, Dr. Nolan, and I are members of it. So that's <laughs> the right. Re- well, just yeah, to start off, that's where. <laughs> so anyway, good. welcome, Dr. Nolan. How are you, sir? Great. Thank you for being here. I'm uh, for, To the audience, I'm just wearing these in, in compassion <laughs> and commiseration with the, uh, with the other hosts. You that's know, right. it, it shows that you are a true team player, Gary. Yes. I really like that. Um, it's an honor to have you. Like I said, uh, I've gotten more people to hit me up for questions. Actually, even then, even then when we had uh wonderful Lou Elizondo. Oh, there we go. Here comes stay. Hey! All right. Okay, so uh so Dr. Nolan, that is our experiencer staff. Uh she is uh the the, the fifth member of the Jackson Five. Uh, and we just got to wait for uh, Michael and uh, we got to wait for Tito and Marlon, but they'll be here shortly. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Steph, I had to put you on mute. There was a little feedback happening. I just uh, want to draw your attention to it. So, uh, Dr. Nolan, great to have you with us. Um, I know you've been very busy. I know you've recently, uh, you know, been on vacation. I, I, I hope that was uh, at least a little bit relaxing. I know it wasn't maybe the perfect vacation you wanted, but uh, we're honored to have you with us this evening and just on a personal note, really grateful for what you are doing in this space and for your courage to kind of take this on. I know it's not something that uh, the academic community has, um, you know, willingly wanted to take a look at and shine a spotlight on, but uh, the fact that you've been willing to do that and kind of lead the way is, uh, it means a lot to to those of us who have an interest in this area. So thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, I think you just have to look at some of the announcements today, uh, right? The, uh, the renaming Arrow. Mm-hmm. Better name. Yes, much the announcement that Kirkpatrick is going to be the head of it. The uh, basically the wording in the um, NDAA for the Defense Department, all supporting 
the basically the impetus and the direction that Lou and Chris charted out just a, a few years ago. Um, and so I'm just super excited. And the number of, uh, let's say, mainstream scientists who send me emails saying, Gary, you were right, is just, it's just, it's heartening, actually, wow. that, you know, the, the, the scientists in general don't like to be wrong, but they're willing to be not right. Right. <laughs> do you, do you keep an I told you so board, Gary? Do you? Do you uh, <laughs> Uh, no, but I do. I, I do do quite a bit of "I told you so." Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> you know, keep them under my thumb. Nice. You're gonna, you're, you're actually gonna have to do that. I think uh, here in the, in the maybe not too distant future. Although I am sort of wedded to the idea that that this mystery won't be really revealed until after I'm gone. Uh, but I do want to say, um, first of all, I think it's awesome. You're uh, one of the the only guests we've had on that can use the word gestalt. Uh, in a sentence uh, and instantiated. So I want to say thank you for improving my vocabulary on that, doctor. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Also, I want to know if you think that this is coincidental or not, that both you and my co-conspirator, Nathan, both look like Dr. Heineck. (laughs) Is that just a coincidence? The J. Allen Heineck connection? Yeah. Maybe he's just Irish. Maybe he's just Irish. I don't okay. know about it's possible. Yeah, there could be some Irish in there for sure. Definitely. I'm Irish German, so oh nice. Okay, that could that could explain it. Um, yeah, you are the rarest of birds. I was, you know, being that you have so many colleagues with that come from, you know, other pathologists and and just people in science in general that come from your background. And I'm I'm curious, do, do you think that it's just being human? in terms of uh, not wanting to be derided for engaging this topic, or was it that experience that you had as a youth? I think that, that you are a rare bird among your colleagues. What do you think is, is, is the nature of that? You know, I, 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 it's a good question because I always wonder when I talk to other people, other scientists about it, why it isn't obvious to them that it's something that should be paid attention to. I mean, to me, it's just obvious that this is interesting. And when I do get them like behind closed doors or uh, on the side where they're willing to be a little bit more uh, open in their discussion, they do admit the same kind of interest. But for whatever reason, there is that inhibition that they're afraid of what other people think about them. And, you know, maybe this is just part of, I mean, I'm openly gay. Right. And I went through, uh, you know, I went I I didn't actually have a bad coming out, but I did go through a situation at Stanford where a senior faculty member, you know, said some things that were unfortunate and he ended up basically being forced out Mm. because. of it. Um, And so I think that being able to come out like that and then also time and again with the things that I have invented in my lab where I was told even by very well-known Nobel Prize winner at one point, oh, that won't work. Uh, And then that just, to me, is something inside of me says, I'm going to prove it to you. And because I know that I'm right. And so it's like, I'm not going to let you stop me. And I know how to do it. And so maybe it's just that. I don't think it's, I don't see it as courage. I just see it as this is the right thing to do. So let's go after it. And oh my God, if it is right, the opportunities are endless. 
And so I always look for opportunity. And so I see tremendous opportunity in this. First of all, I mean, as people have said before, can it bring people together? Perhaps mm -hmm. will it help dissolve walls? Probably. Um, will it give us a different perspective on the physics or the spiritual nature of the universe? Of course. So let's just do it. Right. <laughs> I, I, to me, it's just like why and, and why it. we have these skeptics out there just like peppering. I mean, they're becoming less relevant every day. I mean, just in the last week, way less relevant. So it's like, okay, you know, I'm not even going to spend any time thinking about them anymore. I mean, it's it's hard, but you know, just forget it and let's move forward because every day is putting them further and further in the rearview mirror. Mm -hmm. It's funny that I had a, I also have a question for you about that. That and I and Dolly, when we spoke on the phone, he also I said I have that same question, James. I'll get I'll get there. Uh, but anyway, let me uh, let me go back to either Nathan or Steph. Uh, Steph, are, are you ready with your? Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Hi. It's it's Hi. great to be be here with all of you, and yeah, it's an honor to to be in the same chat room here with you guys. So um, yes, so I recently went to the UFO Disclosure Symposium and was surrounded by you know the scientists that have been speaking upon the subject, and I recently posed this question to him as a test among experiencers. So what are your thoughts on experiencer group research using electromagnetic frequencies in comparison to non-experiencers to create more data-driven analysis on experiencers. What do you mean by electromagnetic frequencies? What? So using some sort of a detection um, on, say, for instance, when you're measuring uh, electromagnetic field, in your home, say, for instance, when you're, you know, on actual experiencers and people, because they do claim that they have these electricity type static feelings happening. Okay. So, and I've right. actually experienced it myself as well. Okay. So there's, let me sort of separate this then. So you're asking about two things. One, is there an area specific electromagnetic frequency change because somebody's beaming something at you? Yes. And then two, is there something coming from the inside that is being generated that you feel, but, and so can you detect that? Correct. Well, I, I think there's probably a good proportion for the latter one of the population walking around right now with those various wristbands on. Sure. And so I guess one experiment to do would be to get uh, some appropriate group with an app that would download that data and correlate it to you know, some observation that they made at the time, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I think that would be one way to look for the in, the internal changes that might occur. I mean, you might not measure, I mean, the problem is we can't run around with a, uh, a an EMF detector, right? like, because it's just the, the, the range of frequencies is so broad that there's no one detector that measures at all. Mm -hmm. so you've got to basically pick parts of the spectra. Or you would do what I think really, um, that Colm Kelleher uh, often would talk about and was in all of those released um, Bass uh, papers, are they Bass or ASWAG or I, I, I lose track, um, that basically using the human as the detection device. Yeah. Um, a lot of people out there have said, um, oh, well, they're basically just using humans as bait. No, that wasn't 
the point. The point was that when something happens to a person, consider that an event that is measurable and usable. So there's that. Now, I happen to have one of those detectors sitting over right here, mm-hmm. given to me by you know some of the usual suspects. Mm-hmm. And uh, nothing unusual has showed up. My brother has one. He gets a lot of unusual stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, I mean, he's much more of an experiencer than I am. Uh, and so I, I, you know, I, why not? Let's do it. I mean, we do know that there's a, that there's a specific frequency associated with some of these alleged craft. I'll keep saying alleged just because sure. Jason Paul Velvito out there is always looking for something <laughs> uh, to, I, I, he's written me about me something like 15 times. It's like, he's, he's obsessed with me. Jason, you're not my type. <laughs> Maybe he's attracted to you. <laughs> this is part of his dating ritual. You don't know. Stupid awesome. people. Well, um, you know, so if you are saying that this is something that it's possible that we we could test, you know, like a uh, group, like group experiments, basically on experiencers, mm-hmm. non-experiencers. I mean, I've got a few people that are already on board, so we may be contacting you. Okay. Well, you know, I mean, the thing is that it's it's what you want to do is is just set up to design what a study would look like mm-hmm. and over what time frame and what kinds of people are, you know, you need what's called inclusion and exclusion criteria. I would treat this like a clinical trial. Right, exactly. You know, where you basically very carefully monitor who's in and who's out of the cohorts mm-hmm. uh, and then decide what uh, is uh, a real signal and what's not. Um, and, and there's got to be if you're going to do it right, it's got to be double blinded. In other words, people have to have detectors that they don't know aren't working. Right. Yep. Yep. I mean, that's, you, how we... you, that's how you would do it. That's how you would yep. convince people that the signals that you're seeing are real or are not. Right. Right. D- that's Dr. why Nolan... it's important to test on non-experiencers as well mm-hmm. to see, mm-hmm. is, is there an actual difference that people mm-hmm. are claiming? Dr. Nolan, I I like to look at things from a scientific perspective also. A lot of people don't know that (coughs) (laughs) up here. Uh, And so, you know, I just wanted to run this by you because I had this experience. And basically, after interacting with experiencers and then going back and then finding that my workout clothing smelled like a combination of minestrone soup and French fries. (laughs) So I'm curious if you've experienced anything like that. No, and you're no. dealing with experience. No, only, uh, only fine wine and filet mignon. <laughs> okay. All right. So it. So all right. So maybe we. It's a different scent, but there could be something there at least that we could look at. So, Nathan, take it away, sir. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I, I did have a prepared question, but I, I want to stay a minute on this experiencer topic, and uh, because it is so important to many people, and you've mentioned before, you've had uh, some experience. In your family uh, and maybe some of your own experience and we've had a lot of conversations with experiencers uh, through the show and you, you probably know how very personal it, it becomes for someone that, that's had an event like this who's seeking answers and do you do you have this sense that we through efforts like your own and, and through what, what we're seeing in, in the public discourse that we're getting a little closer to some of these answers or are we really just at the very beginning, we're kind of unraveling more questions? What's your sense there? I mean, I don't think we're getting closer to answers, but we are getting closer to admitting that the question is worth asking. 
Mm -hmm. Right. And admitting to people who have had the experience that they did experience something real, what it means is yet to be understood. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, this is something that John Mack approached in the very same way. And so if anything, we're relearning the lessons he already taught. Um, But it's part of, I think, the good part of social media is it gives people that opportunity to connect that otherwise they would have been siloed, you know, in Iowa or somewhere else where they couldn't meet these other individuals and talk through it. But I think what's going to happen or need to happen at some point, and I've seen a few papers begin this, uh, where, you know, we need to make a list of the kinds of people, what their professions are, what their, uh, you know, what their experiences have been, and start to collate uh, the totality of these experiences with just a, a pure data collection mentality about it. Mm. Because it's, it, it, we can go back through the literature and find many examples of what have been written, but that's all biased in, in many ways. That's things that have been self-reported and then chosen by whoever the writer was to write about it. So there's a lot of bias inherent in that data. So you need a much more open uh, data set that's more objectively collected uh, and then analyzed. Uh, And so I think that, I think that's the best thing that's come out of it, Nathan, that we've admitted that there's, it's worth looking at. The government finally, daddy, has mm. finally told us that it's okay to do this for right. mommy, whatever, you know, if you got mommy or daddy issues, you know, <laughs> that's, you know, All they've said it's okay. Um, and that you're, you know, what you're seeing or experiencing has a reality, whatever that reality is. Right. It's validating. And, uh, you know, on that point, I've always talked about this disclosure as really an, an unfolding process. You know, there's kind of a, we're setting permission for each other by by laying some of these things on the table and saying, this is valid. And then in response, the public is saying, well, if that is valid, then what about this? And then that becomes more valid. And so it's a recursive process. It's yeah. not just a one and done situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted no, to pass no, it over. I, yeah, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Okay, uh, Kev, so you haven't met uh, some of the best hair on the entire show is uh, some one of our wow. guys that works with uh, children, and that is Kevin. What's up, What's buddy? Up? Welcome. How's it going? Can Good you guys hear me? Yeah. Uh, or, 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 Sounds or, great. Cool. What's up? Did you use so, conditioner for for Doctor Nolan? Just okay, actually, I just did. I just got <laughs> home. Yeah. <Okay>. No. <laughs> um. So we're you're talking about data, and I'm big on data. I I'm I work with kids with diagnosed with autism since 2006. So um, I think I, I would have to agree with you. I think that we should should be more scientific and objective. Um, I, I mean, first of all, for the listeners, I, I want to go over what an operational definition is. So operational definition applied to data collection. So it's a clear and concise, detailed definition of measurement. The need for an operational definition, it's like it's fundamental when collecting any type of data in science. Otherwise, we're collecting data on nothing. So Elizondo, he gave us a working operational definition of what a UAP is with his five observables. And that's based on specific observable and measurable data. That's what he's calling for. So does having that operational definition, do you think it devalues data that was collected prior, especially those um, 
that might have been collected using interpretation and speculation? Yeah, I, you know, I don't think it devalues it. I think it it gives us a chance to recontext it. You know, to go back and say, well, did 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 which of these did it meet? But one of the things that Lou is doing, and I've come to meet a fair number of people, let's say on the inside, who have um, they have a way of talking about this stuff with a lot of acronyms uh, that are very militarily inclined, uh, which is fine because that's how that's their job, that's their profession, and so they're applying that approach to this, and it, 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 they love lists. And they love things that they can check off and fix it in categories. The only thing I would add to Lou's list is a number six, other. Mm. Wow. As a bucket into which we throw things that didn't fit those for later mm. contacting to make them six, seven, eight, and nine. Right? I think that's the only thing that is missing from the five observables because there might be a sixth observable that we just haven't really noticed yet right sort of the or, rumsfeldian and the known unknowns and the the known knowns and the known right. unknowns right right i i also mm -hmm. think we could expand on that to say that humans just in general not even only military people they want to put something in a box and when they're they're looking at something that they have no box to put it in that's when mm -hmm. either something positive can occur positive meaning mm -hmm. a discussion like this right. and something negative could be uh, saying it doesn't exist, it didn't happen, it's not real. Yeah, a lot you know, of that is our culture of reductionism. Also, you know, we tend to we tend to do that. That's just how we view everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I I, I agree. It's um, you know, when I look at all of the the numbers of well, here's one way to think about it. There is so much data, we're going to be throwing a lot of it away. Right. I mean, just look at the number of sightings that are occurring, you know, every day. I mean, not all of the videos that are put up are hoaxes and they seem to be put up by credible people. And it's just like, OK, well, if it's a hoax, who's who cares? I mean, you're not, get, you're not getting that many views. Right. So all of this data now. And so I think we can be uh, conservative in what we are going to include at the beginning, because you need a small set that is absolutely inviolable. Uh, that you can then move forward with and then make it bigger and 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 bigger in terms of the the opportunity. Um, you know, I, I I know from other, let's say, places that uh, there is so much data already on the inside that if any of that were to get outside, it would keep several research institutes full-time occupation. Wow. Amazing. And we're building a data set right here. So far, we have workout gear that smells like French fries and minestrone, filet mignon. And I thought Nathan was going to say, oh, mine smells like a Monte Cristo. But uh, actually, we, we have a real treat for you, Dr. Nolan, uh, one that uh, we've been waiting for to, to, to have a dialogue with you. And we're, we're very proud of her. And that is our uh, researcher, uh, a study of UAPs, the host of Deb's Data Dojo, right there at the bottom of your screen, Deb. Hey there, it's good to finally get to talk to you. Actually, I've talked to you a couple of times, but at least I get to talk to you here. Yay, very exciting. <laughs> You're awesome. Um, so, so I guess I'll go into my first question. My first question was that um, it's been said that the CIA came to you to do the research related to the brain. 
and to study the I can't say it. I'm not even going to try to say it. I want to say the basal ganglia. Thank, thank you. I've tried so hard to say it. I cannot do it. I'm not. No, um, let's do it. Let's do it now. Caudate. Caudate. Putanium. Yes. So, <laughs> I Caudate putanium. <laughs> okay. I, one day. One day. I'll get it. But That's all good. We'll I, was, I was wondering if you could tell us um, if they had you do an NDA and if there's some information that working with the CIA you were just not allowed to convey and even why it is you were allowed to convey what you did um no I was I mean I was asked to keep it the information private because it was about individuals uh and you know sort of a HIPAA compliance kind of rule because some of the individuals names were revealed to me because I asked to meet them, I wanted to hear from them. And, you know, one of the things, and this was related to one of the other questions, uh, Steph, that you had asked about, um, you know, measurements on humans, what they asked me to do, and the reason they came to me was not to look at the brain, um, was to utilize one of the instruments in my laboratory that had been developed for measuring blood events. It was called CYTOF, mass cytometry. It was something we developed that allowed you to look deeper into the immune system than anybody could and still is the high-end instrument for this kind of purpose. Um, and so that was why they came because they wanted, because many of the individuals who had been hurt uh, had experienced what you would call inflammatory events. I mean, if you, you know, I sh was shown some pictures of of like red spots, you know, down somebody's back. Uh, uh -oh. Only called inflammatory events, right? Some sort of inflammatory signature. And so there's all kinds of immune system activation events that occur during this. And the general class of, of signals that are generated during wounds and things are called, you know, I, I think appropriately, alarmins sort of a general class of proteins are called alarmins and they get secreted. You might hear the term cytokine occasionally and they turn things on in cells. And so they wanted me to see if I could see any evidence of that. Um, and uh, part of the problem was that most of the people who were brought to me were, uh, uh, the events had happened to them so long ago. Doctor that it would be kind of like saying, it seems, oh, there it goes, okay, it's back. Um, you know, it's, it's if, I were to, if I were to look for a, a, a wound repair signature in you 20 years after you fell down and skinned your knee, it, it just, I, I won't see it, it's too long. So part of what uh, we were trying to set up at the time was to, for people who would be multiple time experiencers in this, or we expected, for instance, would go back on the ranch, um, that if there were an event that occurred in an acute manner, that we would rapidly be able to collect their blood and do the studies. Uh, and so that was what we had set up to, to move forward with. Um, and so that was the reason they came. The, the, the brain imaging happened probably only a I mean, we had the brain images for quite a while, but it was really only after about three or four years that when in looking at the images, uh, we had thought it was damage, 
And then we realized it wasn't. There was plenty of damage in their brains, right? In, in several of these people that we looked at. Um, but uh, there was a commonality that we saw in a couple that we thought was damage, but was really just this increased neuronal density. Um, and that was the cardiopotamin. And that sort of what that spun off from that. I mean, I, and I want to hopefully I can stamp out a, 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 a misapprehension probably from my not saying it correctly previously, the, the interaction with whatever they experienced did not cause the neuronal density. That was pre-existing. That pre-existing neuronal density in the caudate patamin interface is now recognized by many people. It's standard, it's standard. The caudate is involved in intelligence and intuition, dead stop. Right. So we inferred that before we had even seen the literature based on two of the and we we basically made a, an educated guess. Two of the individuals in the cohort we, we had looked at were super high end remote viewers. Right. And so I see remote viewing and intuition as almost the same thing. You are coming to a conclusion based on sparse data. You're using some elements of your circuitry in your head with just you know, slight data here or there to put it all together and come to the right conclusion. That's intuition, you know, right out of the box. And so it wasn't until we started looking into the literature that uh, we realized that there was extraordinary evidence for this. And then we've since, I have since, uh, basically got a postdoc and he's working in a lab at Harvard. I pay for him. And um, he has, we have replicated Kit's original findings uh, on an independent cohort showing uh, a caudate to intelligence and capabilities relationship. So it was all there. And it was, it, it was all there because of those two remote viewers it's it's when you have the extremes that you can figure out what normal is or the the meaning of what's going on with normal. And I mean, I think Kevin's uh, children that you work with, autistics, they're an extreme uh, that has a, a lot of value. I mean, there's some incredible abilities in many of these autistics. Uh, and so, you know, it, it unfortunately ends up for many of them being a... Um, a hindrance, but there's it, it's part of what I think of as the as the human profile of genetic diversity, and so you have to diversify. And sometimes, unfortunately, the diversity ends up coming together in a bad way. But the ones that are just a little short of the edge of the of the bell curve, those are the geniuses, right? They're the geniuses on the autistic side, and the, and they're the geniuses on the schizophrenic side. You know, you go a little bit too far and, you know, you fall off the cliff and you have problems, right? But that, um, that, that diversity is, is necessary. So what's fascinating about both autism and schizophrenia is that when you look in the brain as to which areas of the brain are altered uh, or there is some what you would, what, it's called pathology, but I think that's a, the wrong kind of word. I don't want to be all woke and everything, but um it is uh, the caudate patamen is damaged in these individuals. So again, 
coming right the brain as being incredibly important for perception and integration of information from your immediate surroundings. Uh, and this is where I've posited complete speculation that this is where whatever the antenna is that the remote viewers use integrate information and it's overlaid onto one or more of the sensory systems uh, inside of these individuals' heads and then somehow it reaches perception. And, um, you know, the what I've, you know, again, also speculated that if you, if that's true and there are proteins that design people's brains in certain ways that creates better antennas, let's say, uh, those proteins have genes and those genes are heritable, which means you should be able to track the genes if you get a sufficiently tight cohort of individuals who have it, and specifically families. Family genetics is 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 absolutely essential for this. You just you increase the signal, and so what got me all excited about this was that uh, in our cohort we had a couple of husband-wife pairs, both of whom had it, even though it seems to be only found on average at about one in 200 individuals. So here in a cohort of 20 people, you had two pairs of husband-wife who both had it and, and at least one or more of their children had it. The statistics just doesn't work for that, right? I mean, it's, it's one in 400, 20 times 20, for two people coming together out of a, uh, it's just pure, you know, it's just how you, how you do it. But then to have two groups of them, it's 400 times 400, which is, I don't know, 16,000 or something like that, or 160,000. So the chances are, are low for that, which again, it just implies genetics. And once you, you find it in the parents and then you find it in the children, I mean, that's sort of game over. Mm-hmm. So yeah. why? Gary, I have a, a question from the friend of the show, but I, I have another friend uh, that also wanted to ask this question related to the caudate patamen. And uh, I think what he's asking, because I don't have it here on a spreadsheet anymore, um, is, um, is there, have you seen with remote viewers specifically, do you have a data set that would reflect whether there's an enlargement of the brain or a different shape or anything relative to the caudate patamen? about remote viewers specifically? No, we don't have enough, we don't have enough data, but this is the reason though for doing the studies with the Harvard group is that what we've done is we, we now have identified uh, online databases for MRI images where many of these MRI images are associated with metadata, which is tests of people's you know, intelligence, fluid intelligence, crystallized intelligence, emotional states, et cetera, et cetera. These are all online databases. The British and the Germans are the best. Um, so the first study that we did, uh, Kit and another uh, a neurophysiologist uh, did it by hand. They did a double blinded measurements of the, of the density to make sure the Kit wasn't fooling himself. So I didn't want to do any of that anymore. So we, we, basically uh, adapted uh, an AI program for what's called auto segmentation of images. And so if you imagine that 
um, when you do an MRI, you're kind of seeing a shadow of the of the shapes and objects inside of the brain. This program can can find where the basal ganglia is, can basically create a contoured surface around where that is, can measure then the volume, can measure the surface area. And with the right running of the MRI, you can actually get the density of uh, the neurons there. And then you can also, with uh, something called tensor, uh, you can actually look at the neural tracts between these areas of the brain. So while Kit focused only on the basal ganglia because of uh, the cardiopatamian, because that's what we noticed, this is now, a f and, and he did it by hand, this is now a fully objective AI-driven map of the whole brain, all the interconnections that you could want. Um, it worked. We've already published one paper on using it. We've got a better version of it now. Um, and now we're looking, and what we're beginning to find is that there's several different parts of the brain that seem to be important. It wasn't just the cardiopatamin, because if the cardiopatamin is collecting more information or generating more information, then the wiring coming and going from that has to be better. You know, it's got to have more bandwidth. And whatever is receiving or giving that information has to be different. So we're getting all of these correlation maps of how the brain operates, and but we're doing it with normals. And the important part about doing it with normals is it establishes a credibility in the field that you now have three or four papers that you've published that said, here it's normal, here's the people who are referencing our papers, people are beginning to use our algorithms and programs to do it, you establish credibility, and then, and then we start getting some grants, and then we go for the cool people. <laughs> That's what I want to do. And, like but me. I'm not, oh, not call like remote viewers, I'm going to call them, uh, you know, basically savants or uh, high functioning individuals, you know, or even make the, even say that they claim that they have this ability. Um, we think it might be hysteria. You know, we'll, we'll put that in the grant, say it might be both and, and see where it goes. And then you just fight it through review the review process. I mean, you usually will get something back and they'll say, oh, this is rubbish. And then you call up and you and you whine uh, and you go, you know, you just go back and forth. And that's just how it works. Doesn't matter whether it's mainstream science or, or this. Or you find somebody wealthy enough who can fund it out of their pocket. And there's lots of those people, actually. Nathan. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> all, right. all right. So uh, this uh, this question right here, Gary, is on behalf of experiencers. Uh, this is our friend Maxie McCabe, who's a multiple-time experiencer. One of them was uh, kind of like the altitude over his house is the one that you've described. But uh, what he's asking is, let me make sure I get this right, white areas of the brain were described as similar to MS. MS can cause pedendal nerve damage affecting sexual sensation slash function. Where any subjects, so I think what he's asking were, um, I, I think he's thinking that other experiencers that he's communicating with, uh, after having these prolific close contacts are having an issue with, uh, the sexual organs and feeling and that they've lost. And he's wondering if, it, you know, if, if you've been able to, uh, find that in any of your studies. That was, that question was never asked, nor that information offered by the individual's to okay. my knowledge. Um, and I don't, 
I have begged Kit many times, and he says one day when he dies, he'll give me all the data, but he doesn't <laughs> want to do it uh, until then. He's promised me his server. I said, wow. okay, fine. Um, but no, but I mean, I, I think seriously, though, what, when I say that it looks like MS, MS is kind of random. It's immune inflammation that managed to start attacking the myelin sheath somewhere. And it's just kind of random around the head, like metastasis of cancers in the body. They kind of go in certain places, but they're, you know, more or less, you know, can show up anywhere. And this damage, but the, the damage that you see in an MS MRI, and I have a family member with MS, um, is basically dead tissue. It's scar tissue. And so an MRI of some of these individuals who were hurt uh, in the brain, uh, it is dead tissue. It's just, you know, it's just no two ways about it. It's, it so when I say it's like, M say it's like MS, it's, I'm actually not speaking when I say that to the general public, I'm speaking to a doctor who understands exactly what I mean when I say that. And so they understand, oh, this is damage. Boom. And, it, and it's, it's randomly, it's sporadic and it looks like this. Um, so I, I've not seen anything directed, but that was what attracted us to the caudate patamen because that was the commonality. That was the dense region, the white region that looked like damage. But then when we looked closely, we realized it wasn't damage. Good. Okay. I can tell all those people who think that I'm that, that I have brain tissue damage that it's not. So I'm, I'm glad. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> let's pass it over to our UAP experiencer, Steph. Perfect segue. So um, the implant subject, I have been a very up close experiencer myself, along with my mother, my sister, and my brother back in the 80s. So my question to you is regarding MRI scans. I personally have had MRI scans with and without contrast. Through those, I have found two artifacts told to me by the doctors that they are artifacts. One is shaped this as an upside down tear. So a tear, but upside down on my left side. And then also I have another one that looks like it's a size of a grain of rice within a circle. Okay. I'm going with the idea that they are just artifacts, but I'm taking this on with further testing and different scans other than an MRI. Where and how deep? So on the left side, it would be over my chest area. And mm -hmm. then it's also on my left side, almost on the outer wall. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, there, so but these were both in different dates and different scans. And this is, this question isn't about myself. It's mm -hmm. just letting you know, Hey, look, I am researching this on my own terms. Right. I'm not being an alarmist. I'm not trying to scare anybody, but I am doing the, the work myself to try and figure it out. And I know that you're an experiencer yourself. So I'm curious as to if you've had any MRI testing as well, but I'd like to know what your thoughts are on those two artifacts that they have found. Right. So um, pathologists and radiologists generally call those um, phantomas, phantom uh, cancers, you know, they're not, but they're, they call them phantomas and they're, they generally don't think of them as anything to worry about, especially if on subsequent scans, they haven't changed. 
where they are or their size. Um, and, uh, you know, usually the placement and where they're found can tell you, for instance, that it's not cancer. If it were found in the lung, those are generally thought of as what are called granulomas. Um, and it might have been an incipient tuberculosis cyst that was encased by the immune system and that was the end of it, right? So, um, you know, all I would say is if, I would say this to anybody out there, um, if you do decide that you wanna get something removed, uh, make sure you do it with a doctor who sends it off to pathology first, right? Yes. Don't have it taken out and send it to, you know, MUFON. Right. And I had a situation <laughs> where somebody did exactly that. And then they sent it to me and I said, okay, this is nice. Where's the path report and where's the consent okay. form? Right. Oh, do we, do we, ha oh, we don't have that. I said, okay, what's your address? I'm FedExing this back to you tomorrow. Right. Mm -hmm. I can be arrested for, you know, especially if that person gets cancer later, mm -hmm. nobody thought to test it. So, you know, I, I, this whole notion and idea of, of implants, I find fascinating, but again, we don't have an approach to, uh, systematically examine them. Right. I mean, one of the things that I'm hoping to be able to set up at some point, uh, and I, when I say at some point, meaning it's actually coming, um, is a pipeline of analysis uh, a regimen that things can be put in the front end and, there, and the data is systematically correct, collected and then, you know, analyzed uh, because everything was done the right way. Mm -hmm. you know, Lear doing it here and somebody else doing it there, another person doing there and said, it looks like this and it looks like this and it moved and it had tendrils and, you know, and it was talking to me or whatever and it moved underneath my skin. <laughs> I, I just can't, I can't deal with all of that. It might yeah. all be true, but it's not something that is going to do anything except get anybody who you want to pay attention to it to roll their eyes. Um, and so, you know, that's been my, my, my push that I, I mean, but I had a conversation about this with someone just the other day, somebody like really up there. And, um, I said, look, they say, well, we should be able to find transmitters and stuff in it. It's, it's emitting radio frequencies. Well, maybe it's not really anything real. It's just a hunk of metal. And it's emitting a radio frequency because it's acting like a battery because you've got it in liquid. You've got two different metals and it's acting like a battery. And so you're getting a slight emission of a signal that's not anything, right? So let's just forget about that. But if you were a higher level intelligence and you wanted to make an implant, are you gonna make it so friggin' obvious that it looks like an RFID chip? Probably not. You'll make it look like a big blob of gunk and then you'll hide the circuitry you know, scattered throughout the thing and you'll use deception to throw people off. So it's, you have to approach it. I mean, Jacques told me this once a long time ago, um, you know, a scientist approaches the problem and if they get a 95% a answer, uh, they're happy and they're done. An intelligence officer approaches a thing and if they get a 95% of the answer, they think that they've been given it uh, <laughs> by somebody else too. 
and they're really interested in Uh, we're we're getting freezing, you like, we're getting you frozen up, Doctor Nolan. And I don't the three letter agency. I don't think is like the one we're thinking of. I think it's the FDA with all the food talk. So I don't I don't know. But yeah, we, it's just. <laughs> I don't know why I'm freezing. It's uh, I have a pretty good computer, but I bet you. Um, anyway, so, uh, I, you know, I think the, the point is that um, again, it's just let's just do it systematically. Right. Let's have inclusion exclusion criteria with these things, something which has high confidence. And, uh, you know, and, and then because I can tell you any of these analyses are expensive as hell. I mean, they really are. It's get an expert on a certain machine. I mean, they have to have trained on that machine for years, usually. Mm -hmm. And you need about 10 different machines, mm -hmm. each with different capabilities. Um, and so, you know, you don't want to be going to 10 different labs. So we've identified one place that does have 10 of these machines, and then we'll sign a deal with them that will allow us to bring all of the stuff, you know, one after the other. Well, you know, as soon as, uh, to do phenomenon... it systematically. Oh, there you go. I'm sorry. You froze. I thought you were, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. All right. Um, let me pass you over to, uh, um, I'm here. Okay. Yeah, there's just a. <laughs> it's an internet thing. That's what it's not a. It's not I get very. Uh, but I get anyway. very red when I drink. <laughs> yeah, uh, we're gonna have to prevent you. I mean, if you're on cough medicine, I'm sorry. We're gonna have to not allow you to drink wine tonight, doctor. <laughs> Too late. All right, money, Nathan. All right, cheers, cheers to Doctor Nolan. Money, Nathan. It's all Indeed. you, brother. Yeah, so uh, I mentioned at the top of the show, I had a lot of folks kind of reach out to me with their their questions, and this one kind of kept popping up. So a lot of folks are, are wanting me to see if you might be willing to speak more specifically to uh, Tim Taylor from American Cosmic. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, he seems to be someone who, uh, you know, spends a lot of time either looking for or spending time with prime, con prime contactees like the Bledsoe's. And you may be familiar with a story where, you know, he provided them with either a metal or a quasi crystal or something which helped them help to identify whether they were experiencers or not experiencers. Uh, does that re resonate with you in any way? Or have you heard that story or? No, a little, sorry, a little bit of the story. <coughs> sorry to the audience. I had COVID a couple of weeks ago. Um, I mean, I know Tim very well. He's a very close friend, um, great guy, and really dedicated to all of this. Uh, you know, I think his interest in this is because, you know, from his position on the inside, uh, he has seen things, hmm. right? You know, and um, that, like many of these indiv individuals, you know, they've they've gotten close to the legacy programs, close enough that they know it's real. Hmm. Um, and so, I think like. And I know him specifically, he is very interested in the spiritual aspects of things. Uh, and so, you know, he converted to Catholicism and all. Uh, and so he's looking for meaning. And, you know, we're not getting meaning from most of the rest of our lives. And we're not getting meaning from even going to church. And so we're looking beyond. Mm -hmm. And so I think he's looking for fellow travelers. And he's bringing them together and because he knows he can't have these conversations 
you know, at the Aerospace Corporation. Right. You know, it's, uh, I mean, you can more now, but, you know, six or seven years ago when I visited him at the Aerospace Corporation, uh, and uh, we couldn't talk, we couldn't talk about any of this stuff. Mm. I, I couldn't even go to the bathroom at that place without a guard standing outside the door. Wow. You know, that's how locked down this, that place is. Mm. Incredible. Well, uh, just as a follow-up to that uh, question, thank you so much for speaking to it. Um, you know, we've heard reports of um, anomalous physiological and psychological effects following exposure to some of these purported exotic materials, such as like electrical sensation, uh, increases in uh, the experience of synchronicity, the download term that you hear within the UFO circles. Uh, just to kind of speculate here for a second, are these metals potentially biotechnologies or do they possess any kind of biological properties to your knowledge? I, I couldn't tell you. I, I wouldn't even begin to speculate. Um, you know, I think maybe, okay, speculate. Uh, if I were to um, think of them, I would think of them as focus devices. Right, that you focus on something and you think about it and it could just as well have been a rock from your garden and somebody told you it was from an alien craft. And because you focused on it, you it sort of like in that remote viewing sense where people will focus on just random numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was Jacques Vallée's idea of how to do it. Uh, indirect remote set viewing There's a different term for it, but um, that that might be part of what's going on here. That it's kind of like the you're allowing yourself to activate, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, in in clinical trials, uh, the you know, you can give somebody a fake pill and they'll get better. Right. <laughs> so wow. this might be similar. I don't know. I'm just guessing. Sure. Now, there might be amongst all of these things uh, a, a true biotechnology or a true technology, but whatever that is, it's at a much deeper level of uh, technical capability than, than I think we, even if we were to look at it and know that's what it is, that we'd be able to understand it. Mm-hmm. So there's this uh, sort of intentionality, this mentation kind of quality to it. Um, maybe even the idealistic metaphysical model rather than the materialist metaphysical model. Is that mm-hmm. something that, that you've entertained or? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm willing to enter. So even before I got into this area, people would ask me when I would go give talks somewhere and I'd go talk to the graduate students and postdocs at lunch. And they'd say, how are you so creative that you've got all of these patents and come up with all these ideas, blah, blah. And, you know, I say, well, what I, what I do is I list you, you, to be a good scientist, you need to be able to list all of the possibilities. And I would make the joke all the way down to micro dwarves that run the universe. (laughs) (laughs) They are the least likely to be true, but they should be on the table. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you need to rank, you need to be able to mentally rank order all of those things and then mentally find a reasonable cutoff that said everything below this is, you know, untestable, not wrong, just untestable. Here's a region that is possible and testable, but I can't do it right now. And here's the region that is testable and accessible. Um, And that is, I I think an important part of all of these discussions is that 
being able to iterate all possibilities uh, and then rank order them and just put some things to the side to say, I can focus on this. Uh, I mean, that's all I've ever wanted to do with this, which is why the, you know, the skeptics of the world, and I won't even name them because I don't want to give them it's like <laughs> saying the devil's name three times. And no, we don't do that here. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Puff of goofy black smoke and faint smell of brimstone. Um, you know, uh, and so um, I, I think that as long as you do that, it armors you against the skeptics. Because you can always say diplomatically, I didn't say that's what I said it was. I'm just saying it's a possibility. Right. So it's you're the one who keeps harping on one conclusion, mm -hmm. but they get you drawn in to claimed was a conclusion. Mm -hmm. And so that's why you just need to walk back and step back and say, no, here's all the other possibilities. You come up with some ideas now, right? You know, come up with ideas that aren't just not the weird. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, thank you. Force them think there to expand their boundaries mm. when I, I, nick I, west can admit certain things like this mm. then i will respect his opinions until then he's not a scientist not mm. happening not how ha I've, I've i've said this since we started the show nathan's heard me say i said i don't not like the guy because he's a skeptic we need skeptics we need that. I mean, that it, but he's intellectually dishonest in his approach because he's already decided what it is and everything is geared toward proving it's not what, in, in many cases, very credible sources have said it is based on actual data like Tic Tac. It's so absurd to argue that. If, and people if still he took do it, that so. approach in any PhD program at Stanford, he would be booted out in the second year and given a master's. I could care less what he thinks. Let me move on to Kevin because I actually do care what Kevin thinks. <laughs> Here's the thing. I'm a skeptic, you know, but it doesn't. Nathan's a skeptic. <laughs> no, I'm I a can't skeptic. have a conversation. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm willing to move beyond all that, too. I think that's just a product of culture, too. A lot of that. Um, honestly, so I'm looking down the future and I want to know that. Do you think that? understanding this phenomenon is going to excel us in a direction in history that we as a species are naturally destined or i think it'll get us it accelerates yes i i, I think yeah. it, i think with without this continuous observation we would probably still move along a path of materialist science mm -hmm. right but these observations tell us that the universe might be just a little bit bigger than we thought. And so it's forcing people to more quickly come to different conclusions about things. And maybe it's, I mean, and it is accelerating us <coughs> in different ways. I mean, where was the first idea for warp drive? Whoever thought that up, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't Star Trek and they, you know, they promoted it, uh, put it into the zeitgeist and everything, but um, came from science fiction, but it also came from, you know, I, I will bet that it came from some observations that somebody made or thought about that things could, you know, a, a species could move faster than light. Once Einstein said, this is the limit, somebody asked why. Mm -hmm. And when you started writing this 
science fiction story, they said, well, for my science fiction story to work, somebody's got to get from the other side of the galaxy to here faster than light. And so then was born the notion of warped space that we could travel in. So I think that that's what we're seeing right now. We're seeing objects that do we can't do. And I mean, that's what had Hal put off, for instance, come up with the first equations that showed you could warp space and explained why these objects were bright. The equations told you why the object was bright. Basically, it's take that because uh, infrared, when it passes through this field, would be upticked in frequency and energy, infrared light became bright white light, right? And actually uh, um, damaging um, uh, radiation. And it's, it's all right there in the equations. Uh, and so that it fell out of the equations and fell out of the observation that, okay, if it's moving that fast and we want to bend Einstein's equations to the problem, these assumptions that Einstein make, made that this is a limit and, and, and that's a, you know, that's a, a divide by zero. Let's say that we, that's not a divide by zero, right? Let's put a number to it and suddenly warp drive falls out of it. And El Cubier has come up with a, another version of it and five other guys have come up with other versions of it. All that takes standard theory and just show that if you modify, if you assume that the amount of energy is accessible, then you can do it. But nobody ever assumed that the amount of energy was possible. So you just say, well, I know I can't make that amount of energy. I'll just assume it can be done somehow. And if I do that, this is what I can accomplish with it. Right. And so then people say, well, oh, well, 10 to the 10 ergs or whatever of energy is that's way too much. But here I can change the equations and I can make it 10 to the seven. Oh, I can change it and I can make it 10 to the four. Right. And so, I mean, when I, I remember talking with Hal about it a long time ago now, five or six years, and I said, so he's, I, we were sitting in an, ele we were in an elevator, um, actually in Vienna. And uh, I said, well, how, how are they doing? He said, I don't know. I said, but they're getting energy from somewhere. I said, they're cheating, aren't they? I said, yeah, they're cheating. They're <laughs> cheating the rule. That it's wow. very, very yeah. important point that, that you, I'm sorry, Kev, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the function seems to be that they're just confounding all rational thought, you know, yeah, all the sciences. And yeah, it's always been that way, really. If you look back through history, it's always confounded. It, I want to say, though, the important point you said, though, for laypersons out there, because I'm coming from the aviation side of things, is what you said is having a certain amount of energy to move something or to make something stay in one position for hours and hours at a time or move rapidly. It's very difficult for people to conceptualize why it's, why that's a, why that's not a thing that, that mm -hmm. we're able to do at this point in time. Uh, even a laser, a lot of people don't know, like firing a laser you can't just uh, like on Star Trek, just have multiple sort of iterations. Right. There's a big charging process that goes on in a laser's fire. And I know from the aviation side of the house, the, the difficulties that, that we've had with it. So, um, so anyway, uh, thank you for pointing that out. Uh, there's multiple aspects of these craft that are so, that are absolutely mind blowing that 
people don't understand. They think you can just do it. And it's like, no, right. you can't just do it. You can't That's just why do we it. fly airplanes. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, there's a couple of different ways you could imagine it. You either have one generator that creates the field, or let's say that that takes too much energy to create such a large field. The other idea that's now out there is you have multiple tiny engines next to each other that when the fields get close to each other, they converge. And so you don't have to extract extraordinary amounts of energy. You just need to get a little bit of energy locally, and then you basically build a wall around you. And But again, what falls out of the equations is momentumless travel. Yeah. <laughs> right? That's right. Momentous travel, instantaneous acceleration and deceleration, transmedium, it all falls out once you do that one thing. So, you know, whatever these things are, they don't care that we see them. And maybe they don't care that we can, that they say, oh, they're never going to be able to do this for another 10,000 years. So we're just going to go about our business, whatever their business is. Um, You know, I wrote a, I wrote a white paper for the Senate Intelligence Committee on this whole thing. And, um, you know, I gave the opportunities because I'm more interested in the opportunities uh, that are there. But I said all of this speculation at the end, I said all of this speculation leaves out the most obvious question. What is their intent towards humanity? Right. So, again, it again it's just i don't I mean, there it, it's real whatever it is so what's its intent uh and you know we could circle this question endlessly with positive and negative vibes about what it is or might be um it isn't making it obvious for us uh you know you can go down a rabbit hole of being scared to death about it or you can say well we're okay for now. And that's the one I'm going to take. I'm going to take, we're okay yeah. for now until somebody says otherwise. Uh, I'm excited because as a scientist, once I know something, I'm not interested in it anymore. Right. <laughs> I, I, heard this too. Yeah. I love that one. Mm-hmm. You know, All right. I, I want to go and, and understand the next thing. Right. Mm-hmm. If, if you can imagine Hussein Bolt or Usain Bolt in the starting blocks of a 100 meter race. That is Debs at the bottom of your screen right now. (laughs) Take it away, Debs. So my question is actually something I've touched on a little bit with you before about um, psychiatrists, therapists, and doctors. Why, and scientists actually, we we greatly appreciate that you have come forward, but why do you think these other people are shy about getting involved? And what do you think we can do to change that? Um, well, why are they shy? Uh, well, they're just scared of what other people think about them. You know, maybe they're at a position in their lives where, um, they are monetarily insecure. Um, you know, I think one of the things that has made it possible for me to come out is in all of this is that I'm, I've made a lot of money selling companies that spun out of my lab. So I could lose my job tomorrow and I could be perfectly happy. Um, you know, but all of those successes perhaps made me a little conceited or arrogant about what I can do. Um, I feel like I can do anything. So, 
I think that's what we have to get across to people. And I try to instill in my students is you can do anything. Just say you want to do it uh, and make it your purpose. And don't be afraid. I mean, I've, I've said this before, shame. People use shame to corral society into columns and places and boxes. It's like the first thing you hear and remember when you're growing up is you should be ashamed of yourself. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, it controls you. As long as you're not doing something unethical, don't let anybody shame you into doing what you think is right. And so I think that's kind of the, that's the message that I send to people often. And then creating a safe space, which is what the media is doing now and the government is doing now. I mean, the new Arrow department created a Twitter account today. A Twitter account. I, I already followed it, right? Yeah. And so, you know, what could be a quicker, easier way for me to tell some of my colleagues that this is real is to say, put a link in an email, go look at this, go look at this. And at the very least, what it will do, it will, it will stop that reflexive, oh, it's tinfoil hat territory. It'll give people pause a little bit. Um, so, you know, do I, but again, at a certain point, now that the ball is rolling, I don't need really to convince anybody else. Enough people are convinced that there's money pouring into this now. And there's scientists starting to come on board, serious scientists starting to come on board. I've got a Nobel Prize winner who's willing to step up and help. So, you know, this is, it's, it's the cat's out of the bag. Uh, and so it's not going to get stuffed back in now anytime soon. Um, so at, at, at this point, it's like, let's stop trying to convince other people that we're right and just do the work. Or as Jacques would say, quoting a famous physicist, shut up and calculate, right? <laughs> you know, just stop worrying about what other people are thinking and trying to convince anybody of anything. Yeah, Because if they're not convincible, they're not convincible. I would rather harness people's energies to do the work. Yeah. I mean, when people tell me I can't do something, I don't sit around, you know, writing screeds about them on the wall. <laughs> you know, I get into the lab and, and work. And I tell my students, I said, when the experiment doesn't work, don't get mad at yourself, get mad at the experiment. Mm. You know, you, you coming out is just emblematic of how you are, uh, you know, your courage, it permeates other areas of your life. And this, this is no different. Um, let me bring you over to Stephanie. Is it Miss Stephanie? You're next, right, ma'am? Sure, sure. And I'll just say, Gary, one thing that we all have in common with the Stanford professor is none of us care about what anyone thinks about us. So same, we're all on board with you. We do not care what anyone thinks of us. We know we know that they're real. So okay. <laughs> awesome. But okay, so and here's my question for you. So now that we have established the fact that UAP are actualized, they are real, they are among us. Um, if the theory is true that they, they being the beings, are already among us, 
what would this mean for the CDC and the potential of extraterrestrials disease merging among humans? I'm completely, I don't even worry about it. I mean, okay. I mean, they've been, whatever it is, has been here for thousands of years, tens of thousands of years. I mean, you know, um, let's just kind of play with some ideas. Let's say that they were from another planet on the other side of the galaxy. Mm -hmm. They evolved under different conditions. They probably don't even have amino acids, right? So any virus or bug that grew there isn't going to see us as a food source. Uh, but if they evolved here from some prior human species, or let's say, you know, unbeknownst to us, the dinos some dinosaurs became intelligent and went underground or flew off somewhere and came back and now they're, you know, now they're 100 million years old. Uh, again, very little chance of cross-species uh, jumps at that. I mean, you know, stuff happens. COVID happened, right? Pangolin and bats, you know, I, but mm -hmm. I, I'm not worried about that. I would much more worry about some, I, I mean, if you want to worry, if, if you want to get yourself worried about pandemics, worry about what some laboratory in a, you know, in a terrorist organization is up to. Because I can think right. of a hundred ways to make something nasty, and I'm not even, and that's without even trying. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely, I, I'm with you on that. Yeah. Not trying, not trying right. to be an alarmist. Right. Exactly. That's, that's, more that's, that's more likely. I mean, I don't think that they walk amongst us, but maybe they do. I don't know, but um, you know, I I just don't think that there's. I mean, first of all, if they're that advanced, they've probably conquered disease, mm -hmm. right? So they probably aren't carrying anything in the first place. Great point. Yeah. Thank so you for hearing my question. I appreciate that. Thank you. Do, uh, Dr. Nolan, we yeah. have just over 50 minutes left. So we'll try to uh, get through these and, uh, and get you out of here on time so that mm -hmm. you can quit drinking wine and take cold medicine. Um, but anyway, <laughs> all right. So, um, my understanding here uh, is that you you did uh, meet Chris Bledsoe and, and were witness to an unexplainable experience and sort of like without I being met, too... I don't remember meeting Chris. Oh, you have not? No, I, I, I don't think I... I mean, if I, okay. I, if I did, I think I met him once at Tim's house uh, in North Carolina or somewhere. Yes, I, I yes. Okay, I think did I you have, okay, uh, let me make sure, because I may have this all wrong. My understanding was you were on the property or you had an unexplainable experience while in their, in their midst or on their property. Not, not, okay, so you not don't me. have such an experience. I don't have an experience with him, no. Oh, okay. Well, then I was going to, I was going to uh, ask you about that, but uh, if not that. I did, the aliens wiped my memory. <laughs> well, don't worry. I mean, this show is well aware that during my abduction experience, I offered for them to do tests on me, take DNA, and they said no and brought me home. So I don't know. I was I was offended. Uh, I was told that before you got abducted, you had hair. <laughs> I did. I, maybe that's what they took. <laughs> that's what it was. Nathan, that that's what happened to seven it. Hair. That's true. And it was luxurious from what I heard. Yeah. I could have looked like Peter Frampton on the cover of Frampton Comes Alive. Mm -hmm. Anyway, 
All right. So then, if if I if if Bledsoe's and and them is not an example, has there been an experience that you've had that has changed you, Gary, as as a person, which manifested itself in say a a, a more fervent approach to your research? Has there been such an event throughout everything with uh with Doctor uh investigating with Doctor Pasolka and and Taylor, et cetera, et cetera? Has there been such an event and how did that, and what was the result? I mean, the, the event that occurred was coming back from New Mexico. Um, and, uh, luggage that I was worried about that something we had found. And, um, of course it had to go through security and I was worried to death about it. And, uh, as it was, as my, uh, backpack went into the machine, the whole machine just shut off. <gasps> and I was like, oh my God, they're going to take my bag apart and they're going to find it. And they're going to ask me what this thing is. And then I'm not going to have an explanation for it. And so there was like a kebab going on everybody's like why did this thing shut off and they you know said wait there and i said oh my my plane and uh you know they took my bag out and they and they turned it on and they ran it back through and nothing happened that time second time i made it through wow. but i was i was i was sweating <laughs> i was you know, i went in and uh you know diana and tim were sitting in the bar having a drink i still remember and i just i I was just, I was just sweating. I said, I need a drink. <laughs> that was, no, I went back and I said, Jacques, what, you know, what, what, what do you think, what could have happened? What, you know, why? He said, well, he said, well, maybe your intensity turned it off. You were so worried. <laughs> I, I don't know. It was, you know, so that changed something for me. You know, I've, I've spoken about that event in London that I had waking up and having something, you know, basically speak in my head. Uh, I had an event, I think, I don't think I've ever, have I talked about this, where I woke up and I felt like I was, uh, you know, somewhere out in the middle of the, of the stars and I looked around and I saw, I said, where am I? And I saw, I said, oh, that must be where I, that must be where I am. Because I was worried that I would not be able to get back. And then I just felt myself going right down. And I remember specifically feeling like I was coming down through the roof of the house and I woke up. So that was an event. You know, was it an out of body? Was it a was it just a dream? I'll never know. Right. I'll never know. But it but I remembered it. Right. The little people in the bedroom, I remember them. You know, there's there's nobody who's going to tell me it didn't happen. Like remote you know? viewing from your dreams. I, I did a remote viewing once with Ed May, yeah. and that blew me away. Mm -hmm. Totally blew me away. He, you know, basically had me do one and I was like. Either this was a magician's trick extraordinaire, but I, but what I saw was what he had randomly predicted to show up 10 minutes in the future on his computer. So, and that convinced me. And, but, but what was cool about that moment was realizing that the signal that people talk about has a flavor to it there's something different about the signal than your everyday moments of consciousness. 
And so I've begun to recognize that signal when, let's say, moments of intuition occur. That I know that I should pay attention to this because it came from somewhere else somehow. It's, it's, a, it's an anomalous signal that came from somewhere. And so, you know, those are kind of the things that I walk away with and remember. So there's a, there's a purpose. Yeah. You're, you're, there's a, th that's a drive now that that's just, you know, we've found the courage. We found the, the impetus, the drive beyond just the fact that you're a scientist. It's very interesting. Let me, let me pass it to money. Nathan, please, sir. Yeah. So, um, Let's say that it's, uh, some I've argued that we're already here, but we're in a post-disclosure world. And, uh, you know, we have those who are experiencers or not experiencers and, or maybe will leave themselves to be experiencers. And we have these sort of physiological biomarkers that we know of that seem to kind of confirm one or the other. Is there any kind of, um, I don't know if this is maybe an ethical concern or whatnot, that the population might try to you know, sort of drive or divide themselves between these kinds of groups by, you know, doing like a 23andMe biomarker test, you know, like that I, no, I am I or mean, I'm not, or, you know, have you thought about that? You know, the, 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 the Marvel universe, you know, uh, it has talked about this sort of thing already. I mean, it's been written about in science fiction many times, you know, it's uh, nobody, nobody wants to think that they're about to be replaced by something better. Mm -hmm. You know, and so the point would be to make sure that nobody thinks you're better. Mm. Right. Right. Don't yeah. come across as condescending. Okay, I'm coming. Right. <laughs> Go on. Downstairs. Go on. Um, I think that's the most important thing is that, you know, what divides us is people thinking that they're better than someone else. Right. I think any talent comes with a cost. And a burden, right? Yeah, a burden. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So that, that that's resonating with me right now. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Uh, who's that? is it? Kev, Steph, Kevin, Steph, and we have about we've got about eight minutes left. All right. Well, I was going to go into Jungian Kevin, archetypes, yeah. but yeah, we don't have time to go into Jungian archetypes. So I'll just <laughs> keep it. I'm fine with Jungian archetypes. <laughs> oh, you want to go there? All Let's right. Do it, yeah. Kevin. <laughs> okay, so here's the thing. I noticed that the saucer has changed into a tic-tac or into a shape of an egg. And I think Jung would be very, very interested in that because he was also interested in alchemy. So um, basically, Jung, Jung saw the archetype, I mean, Jung saw the saucer as an archetype of wholeness. So in alchemy, the egg stands for the liberated soul. Now I'm wondering if that being said, you think that humanity's needs have changed from needing wholeness and unity to one that needs liberation and rebirth. And this phenomenon may be a projection of this need by the collective unconsciousness. Good. I mean, it sounds like a decent hypothesis to me. How would you prove it though? How do we prove that? That's the question. Archetypes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just, you got to look at the past symbols. You got to look at your culture, you know, mm -hmm. what kind of what you're projecting onto what you're seeing. There's a lot that goes into that. I mean, consciousness well, is a machine, basically. Yeah, no, we, we do. I mean, people laugh sometimes about this notion of consciousness intent creating the future. We do it every moment. Yeah. I, I pick up this glass and I've changed quantum reality by my intent. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I, I got in an argument and actually Diana kind of hinted at this in, in her book with somebody at a, at a meeting um, who was claiming that saucers were a representation of male desire to see breasts. Mm. And I, I just blew up, mm. you know, that's just, you know, that's just, so I said, wait a second, I'm, I saw such a thing and you know, my persuasion, I should have seen something a different shape, <laughs> you know, without being explicit. <laughs> right. So why do you think, you know, I just, it just was so, it was so condescending to say that everybody's, uh, what they thought they saw was fake and it was just their outer manifestation of their inner sexual frustrations. I said, it sounds more like your frustrations than anybody else. <laughs> yeah. She was projecting for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I mean, but Kevin, to be serious, I mean, this notion of the collective unconscious creating what we observe, that's right out of Jacques Vallée's uh, thesis, right? That, um, you know, you, it gives, or what Colm Kelleher would often say, it gives you back what you what you want, what you give it. You want something negative, it gives you back negative. You want something positive, you get back positive. You know, if you, I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, it's it's a weird. It, it it's weird because it it creates apparent synchronicities that um, are, I don't know just make you sit up and pay notice. You know, the, the, the problem is that it's, it, it's, it's rife. Here's how I think about it. I think it's sort of like an intelligence test. It's rife for ridicule, but if you are sufficiently observant and smart, you can jump to the conclusion of what it is without having to have all of the data that proves it, right? And so I can know that something is true without being able to draw a mathematical or geometric line between A to Z. And so I think that's part of what's going on here. That is like, do you know what is in front of you and what you're seeing? You know, and it draws you forward. I mean, it's very self-congratulatory, obviously, thinking that, you know, we are the chosen, et cetera. And it's, you know, it, it, it makes you similarly subject to ridicule. But um, I don't see it as that. I see it as people who are showing the way. Um, thank you very much for that answer. We want to get Debs in there. We've got about four minutes left. So Debs, go ahead, my friend. Yep, we got a question from our friend Grant Lavac, who does research in Australia. Hey, His Grant. question is, do you have any thoughts on um, why other countries, Australia, the UK, are dragging their heels on the UAP topic and not taking it seriously like the US? Well, the British, I'm, I'm was born in England, you know, uh, we left because of the conservative nature. I was born in Liverpool and, uh, you know, that was kind of like, you might as well, it's like the Harlem of, of England. Um, and uh, the, uh, I think they're just conservative. They haven't, um, you know, it's, I, I just call it conservatism, right? I mean, they're just more conservative about this stuff still. Um, you know, they they don't have a Lou Elizondo or a Chris Mellon with all the contacts on the inside, 
who are drawing them out. And to be quite honest as well, they don't have the research programs going on that we do, right? So they don't have the raw material from which to draw somebody who is going to reveal all. You know, we have apparently extensive programs that have been going on, right? And so lots of potential whistleblowers. I mean, congregate those whistleblower laws because they just wanted to shut Lou and Chris up. They wrote them because they have seen the data and it scares the bejesus out of some of them, right? Because they know what it is that they're looking at. And, but then they also know that there are people there, there's lots of people there able to come forward. Maybe Britain was just too poor. So Britain, prove that you weren't poor. Prove that you weren't behind the eight ball on all of this. Australia, prove that you had what it took to do a study. Or stop saying no. That's how I, I say, I, I always challenge people of, you know, I, I think that's the way to, to do it. Uh, so I, I just don't think they had the research programs. And therefore, there's nobody to tell anything. There's nobody on the inside to tell parliament that they had the, re that the research was going on and that there was something real. We have lots of people stepping forward and telling them. I've said to people, that's, that I think that's as critical as they are of, of our government, and there's a lot to be critical of, um, they've, we've done more than anybody else. So whatever country you are, you're not doing more. So uh, Brazil is probably the closest. But anyway, um, really Brazil quickly, and Chile, and Chile um, really quickly, um, the one with uh, the two children that Jacques Vallée talked about, I guess they went up in a craft and, and came out of the craft, but came with a piece of material that you suspect was then replaced by a DOD. Is that correct? Right. That's uh well, that's the Trinity event. Um, and uh, the, they didn't go up in the craft. They went into the supposed and alleged downed craft, correct. which was on a flatbed, I think at the time. Um, and, uh, it was, if I remember correctly, it was sitting outside of the bar with the piece. Um, and I've had the piece here at my house, and we've examined it every which way from Sunday. And it, it, for the life of me, it doesn't look like anything exotic. It looks like something somebody just stuck there. It's, it's weird. Got it. Um, you know, there have been people who have said that they found angel hairs and, and stuff on them. And I've looked at those angel hairs and it looks like nylon fibers from whatever it is they wrapped the thing in. I'd love it to be yeah. something amazing. It's not as far as I can tell, you know, I would love it, but there's plenty of amazing stuff that I know exists. Yeah. So that's the stuff that we're trying to get uh, permission to get out. By all means, I hope you do, and I know the community shares that hope. Uh, let's start. Our, we're going to start our round of goodbyes with uh, Steph, please. And as soon as she comes off a of mute. There you Hi go. there. It has been a pleasure listening to your thoughts on all of these con you know, 
questions that we have for you. And I mean, you are the perfect person to ask the questions to. So thank you for your information. It's been a pleasure and I hope to see you again on the next show. We will. Awesome. Thank you. Debs. I wanted to thank you for your own personal financial sacrifices with this. I know you've spent a lot of money on this and also for your availability to us. The fact that I was able to ever talk to you, like you're just so accessible and friendly. So thank you. We greatly appreciate that and your open-mindedness. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Kev, I get it. You, sir, are my new hero. <laughs> That's that's all I want to say. I mean, I had you pegged for a nuts and bolts person, but you're you kind of are. But it the machine, your machine is the human body. So really, we're interested in the same thing. You're 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 my hero. I just thank oh, you nice. for everything that you've done. <laughs> and the money man. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, you know, I, I think about the hitchhiker effect and how we think about that negatively, but I think about these moments as a positive hitchhiker effect. These are moments where we're sharing ideas and, and our, our search for, for truth and, and they kind of activate nodes in the network, mm -hmm. right? And other folks come into the story and, and, and be an active player. So thank you so much for just playing the part that you play in this. And, uh, and we look forward to seeing what comes out of your continued research. Thank you. It will be great. Thank you guys. Yes, uh, Gary, thank you for your, you know, as I said earlier, your courage and your determination, your dogged determination, looking for answers in a scientific way and championing the truth and not allowing yourself to be uh, bullied by uh, people that, that uh, want to change the narrative in the direction that's going to gain them popularization, you know, uh, to become more popular and gain followers and stuff. So I think that that's amazing. And uh, you ask yourself it uh, before you asked that question when it was just the three of us on air, you know, what made you come on here? I hope now that uh, you realize why that was. And it was an absolute honor to speak with you. Thank you very much. Namaste. And on behalf it's a great, of... Uh, it's, a great, it's a great forum. Okay. So signing on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, We'll All right, for, for Dr. Gary Nolan, uh, for Steph, for Deb, for yes. Kevin, and for Money Nathan, this is DJ saying peace out, one love. We'll see you down the road. And remember, we're always wondering what's up around the bend. Peace.